Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Ashley. My pronouns are she, her, and I am joined today with Zelda Lockhart to talk about her novel, Trinity, and particularly multi-generational Black families, mental health, and home. Zelda, thank you for joining us on the Feminist Book Club podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate the invitation. And can you please introduce yourself and what is your definition of feminism? So yes, as you said, my name is Zelda Lockhart and I am living here in North Carolina. I'm an author of several books, um, four of, I have of seven books and four of those are novels. Um, Trinity, of course, is the latest one. My definition of feminism goes a lot with what it is that I do. So I do a lot of work through my um, Black Women's Writing Studio and through any space I enter, regardless of the identity there, to help people to self-define. So that's one of uh, the things in my definition of uh, feminism is our capacity to self-define, to help people to liberate. And that's another one of my um, uh, things that's in my definition, definition, liberate from what? Liberate from colonization and capitalism, you know, basically. Yeah. So to self-define, to heal, um, to liberate, to connect um, as community, whereas we have been diasporatized by colonization, to reconnect our human selves um, through story. Um, I have so many uh, definitions that go with that. But with that healing, um, multi-generational healing for me is a huge part of uh, of a feminist uh, identity and particularly a Black feminist um, identity. So yeah, I could go on and on. Self-respect, respect for others, you know? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your definition. And what is Trinity about? Yeah, so the story... Um, it starts uh, in Mississippi, but then when we get flashbacks of where the story um, starts, it actually begins in Ghana with the first woman and the first seed um, and the impact, the first impact of colonization. So, um, so it spans three generations of Black men who are trying to uh, root out of their lives the violence that has been transmuted in through uh, the violence of colonization. And there is also a girl spirit who is trying to come through and to uh, help to bring the family back to its semblance of love and its capacity to uh, to live a good life uh, without that good life, meaning that it is struggling to transform and for us to mutate ourselves into um, the capitalistic ways. So a lot of the violence in the um, the men that does not um, come out in appropriate ways because it's not able to comes out in some very difficult uh, ways that blocks her entry um, into this world until she's able to get here. So, uh, yeah. And what I love about this story is that, as you said, it is multi-generations of Black men. I feel like Black men don't really get the reverence in stories that they that they should be able to because um you know they their voices are needed this mm -hmm. is multi-generations of black men 
also veterans. Um, there are times where they're serving um, in a war. So the, um, not only the trauma that they deal with at home on, on U.S. soil, but also abroad fighting in a war and also finding their place in the world and also through church. Mm -hmm. So why were many of the voices Black men? And how did you um, create the voices to the experiences that are happening in this story? Mm -hmm. Those are great questions, Ashley. So the um, the one of the questions that I had walked around with, um, and this is what I task other people with when I'm doing multi-generational work with them through the through writing, is to task yourself with the question. Um, that has been lingering and hanging over the heads of you and all of your ancestry. And I spiritually mean that, just like in the story, literally, you know, floating around over y'all's heads. Um, you know, what is the thing that hasn't been resolved? Whose life doesn't have um, story told of it or questions answered about it? And for me, that was my father, because um, he was on the one hand, my abuser, and on the other hand, when I was growing up, I just saw this beautiful little boy who I always wanted to play with, but I always was also afraid of him. So I lived with that duality. And then as an adult, of course, with all of this therapeutic knowledge and uh, and healing knowledge, I was able to bring that um, into the writing exercises that I was doing with the folks who I was working with. And so it started that way. I didn't know I was writing a novel, of course, but it started with doing that exercise of trying to write what are the wounding events, like what happened to my dad um, that made him the way that he was, because we all come here innocent, you know, so then what happened? And um, and then being able to write him uh, into the setting that he was in. My dad was born in 1929 in Simpson, Mississippi, which is where I'll be um, in that county. I'll be in Jackson, Mississippi this weekend. Um, but he was born in the rural area there in 1929. And, um, you know, his his mom, my grandmother Lottie, I found out, you know, left them a lot. So I was able to take what I knew of what might have happened to him and uh, and bring that together and to write about the things that he could not say or did not say. Like my dad didn't talk about his childhood. And we have that with a lot of Black men that they were told on the one hand, you know, um, man up. And then on the other hand, it has not stopped that since colonization, we have had public display of them being beaten in front of us, but then they are to man up or their bodies are used as machines in war and so on and so forth that as they are simply trying to find their way out of something that is like a noose tied with you know, matrix-like strings. So yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so that's, um, that's some of how I came about writing um, about uh, male figures. And then um, in terms of trying to, to write them and be, you know, to W-R-I-T-E them, to write them and to be in their shoes, uh, what it required was for me to dive deep into my own psyche and ask myself, and this is hard sometimes for people to do, but to ask yourself, were you in that person's shoes and you had chose not to grow toward someone else's uh, suggestions and love for you, but to do the best you could and you grew towards something else? Maybe it was drugs, maybe it was alcohol, maybe it was, you know, other other things that you reach for, for 
for a calm, you know, what would that have looked like for you? You know, and to allow myself to steep myself in that as a human, because were it not for some directional things in my life and some people, I could have multi-generationally ended up in the same shoes that my dad did. And then also to just be with and talk to to men and uh, and be in that empathy and sympathy. Yes. And, you know, you write what you know. And yeah. with that, you have, you can add an atmospheric element to it or, you know, make it more fictional, but also make it more realized. And that's what this story does is that it really humanizes the experiences that all of these characters go through. And there's breakthroughs and there's trauma and there's tribulations, but ultimately it's all about the sort of facts of life where um, these experiences really inform the people who have them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and they inform those people, they, they inform experiences of people who have um, those similar types of life journeys, but then they also inform all of us. And so that's one of the things that when I am at readings, one of the first things I do is I ask people before I begin, what I want you to suspend is difference. Um, because that, you know, there, there is difference, but there, but 90% of our differences are, are differences that are put in place based on a lie of difference. And it's that lie of difference that keeps us separate. So I tell the audience members, and then I explain to them what I mean. I say, for instance, as I begin to read to you from this story, I don't want you to be listening to this story and thinking, oh, wow, that's a story about something that had happened to some Black people. Mm. And it sounds like some of that stuff is still happening to some Black people. This is a story about something that's happening to hum- humanity. And, um, and you, in the ecology of this story, you are in it. You know, so I'll tell people that and to say what is happening to humanity right now is happening to every single human. And it all is because of the wounds and pains of colonization and its evil little arm of capitalism. And you are in it. And what you're looking at in the story is a tiny microcosm that will help you because our brains are linear and we need like smaller pieces and bites to understand things. So I tell people that because it's their experience as well in some manner. Yeah. Yes. And how did the various locations create a map to tell this story? Yeah. So I was born uh, in, in the state of Mississippi. Um, so Mississippi, um, I, I get like a visceral feeling every time I say that. You know, I used to tell people when I was a kid because I was growing up in St. Louis and we would go back every summer. And uh, and I was the child in my family who was born in Mississippi. So people, when I was little, I would say, people would say, where were you born? And they thought it was funny, but I knew what I meant, you know, just like the girl in the story. I would say I was born in the Mississippi River and then they would laugh, but I knew what I meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just didn't have the words for it of what a river is. You know, river is spirit, you know? So for me, there is a... Um, when I'm in Mississippi, even when I'm in parts of North Carolina, there is a direct, there is something and I can't even explain it. And geologically, it's not even fully doesn't make sense, but some scientists I'm sure has figured it out. There is some streamline. Oh, actually I did just figure it out by saying that. There is some streamline that is between 
the American South where that red clay is and Ghana where that red clay is. And I just said stream streamline and, and I think I did figure it out. It's not geological, it's not physical, it is spiritual, you know? And so writing about Mississippi, um, because that's where my dad was born. That's where my mom was born. That's where I was born. And what I feel when I am there, what I have always felt as a child, it is a place of my personal individual human wounding. It is a place of the wounding of so many of my peoples. And then it causes me always to want to cast my vision back to what was before the wounding. And so then when I went to Ghana, you know, which is in this in the story in various ways, um, that knowing and being in Ghana, you know, I was able to feel that. But then also, you know, in the story, we have the places that the men in the story have gone, you know, so they've gone to um, to Korea like my dad did. They've gone to Vietnam like my dad's junior did, you know, and they have gone to these places where they have had mostly pains. You know, I can't even say joys and pains in those places, you know. Yeah. So um. So, so a lot of the locations were derived from places that I have been and that the men of my family have been along with where we spiritually uh, and physically as Black people have been, you know. Yes. And we actually, with Feminist Book Club, we read South to America by Dr. Imani Perry. Mm-hmm. And it was such a, a revelation and you know, a parallel to what you were talking about is just like how we see the South, the American South, as just, you know, these places where there's racism and there's, you know, there's cornbread or whatever, but it's really just this labyrinth of America that explains our history and what we're trying to work from and work towards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, we have uh, ground zeros, you know, in our, um, in our, in our human condition that we're living with, with right now, there are spots of ground zeros, you know, my daughter, when she was eight years old, helped me to realize that by asking, you know, uh, the kinds of little girl questions that little girls who, who have not separated themselves spiritually from this physical realm would ask you, you know, and so, you know, some of our ground zeros in, in humanity are in that way that the book opens, you know, where there is a woman, you know, running across the sun hardened clay of the Congo, and she carries in her womb two precious things. The stories of every villager, ever since the first tree ever sprouted, sprouted from the first seed. And she carries the untamed, untainted seeds of her children. You know, before her children did wrong, someone did wrong to her children, you know. So, um, so yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and as we conclude this conversation, what organization is important to you that you would like to amplify to our audience? Yeah, under under a lot of circumstances, I would uh, choose an organization that's just sort of out there. But right now, what I am doing, so Her Story Garden Studios, and that is my um, organization. It used to be LaVince and Press Studios, and it served um, women to help women to use writing to um, to heal their lives. But five years ago, um, I turned it um, to where the attention 
was being called to be, which was to help Black women and girls self-define, heal, and liberate through art and through the reconnection of nature to nature. And so uh, we are having our first uh, workshops uh, in the new space, which is in Durham, North Carolina, where there's been lots of renovating and all kinds of things to make the space how it is that it needs to be and to um, help women to celebrate in a place where I have been told by my ancestors to do particular things that I felt like, how am I going to do that? Where I'm going to get the money, you know, but it is done. And so um, those workshops start, um, the first one is a recollect uh, workshop and it starts September 22nd. And it's a weekend long retreat to help women to recollect and reconnect with what is um, going on inside of themselves where there has been wounding and where there are gifts that are yet to be uncovered and then to go back before the wounds. So it culminates in a trip to Ghana in December. And so I want to highlight um, Her Story Garden Studios because uh, right now that's what we're doing and that's what I feel like needs to be shouted out and called for so that we can have the women whose voices or who's listening, you know, might be hearing my voice, can then have the response to the call. Zelda Lockhart, thank you for joining us to talk about your novel, Trinity. Thank you. Oh, let's do a picture of it. This is Trinity. (laughs) (laughs) We learned about patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism from our parents as they shaped our behavior to make us successful in a world dominated by those social forces. But this taught us to ignore and deny our needs, which is why so many of us don't know how to meet or even identify them. This also leads to conflict with our children, because we can't find strategies that meet our and our children's needs. Fortunately, there's a way we can make family life easier and create a better world in the process. Parenting Beyond Power, a new book by parenting educator Jen Lumanlin of Your Parenting Mojo, offers a simple yet revolutionary framework to replace the conventional parent-child power struggle with collaboration. This new approach helps parents look beneath challenging behaviors, stalling, throwing tantrums, using mean words, and hitting, to find and meet children's needs without conventional discipline like timeouts, countdowns, and consequences. And most of the time, this helps us to meet our own needs too. With sample scripts, flowcharts, resources, and more, find solutions that make parenting dramatically easier. Parenting Beyond Power, How to Use Connection and Collaboration to Transform Your Family and the World is available now wherever books are sold or online at penguinrandomhouse.com. Find more information, videos, and bonuses at yourparentingmojo.com book. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Renee Powers, and I am so delighted to be joined by the host of Stuff Mom Never Told You and the authors of the new book, Stuff Mom Never Told You, Samantha and Annie. Welcome. I will have, let's see, let's start with Samantha. Introduce yourself to our audience. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. Yes, I am a host of Stuff Mom Never Told You. So excited to be on the show to talk about our new book. Yay. Annie. (laughs) Yes. I am Annie. I am also the host of Stuff Mom Never Told You. And I am excited and, as I told you, nervous, Renee, uh, to be on the show, but very excited. No, nothing to be nervous about. You guys are professionals with a capital P. Uh, You actually, like, I told you this before, I will say it here again, Stuff Mom Never Told You is one of my 
first podcast I ever listened to. It is what started me on this podcasting journey. And this feels really full circle. I know that there have been several hosts since then, but it's still been the stuff mom never told you like umbrella. And I am just so geeked that you're here. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm geeked that we're here. Yes. <laughs> we are very excited. Also, like, I feel like we've been lifelong friends. We even got to share a whiteboard together. I mean. Oh, yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> so we record on Zoom. That's how we do our podcast recordings. And Zoom has this new feature of, like, whiteboards. And so before Annie got here, Samantha and I were just, like, playing. Nothing inappropriate came up, which surprised me for me. Um, <laughs> but we were just playing with that feature and drawing great art for Annie, too. Um, yes i love yes. it it looked like <laughs> scribbles of my uh when i was three so my yes. art has not changed no at all oh, it's perfect. <laughs> style it's a style it's so <laughs> i want to talk about this is feminist book club i want to talk about your book stuff mom never told you congratulations thank you thank you <laughs> so That's i was so grateful to get an advanced copy of this book and I actually got an advanced audio copy of this book and listened to it which you both narrate I love audiobooks I love it when the authors narrate um it was so well done it's it's well produced there's like sound effects and like music and and it's just it's so lovely um but one of the things that struck me about the book is that you are very intentional about what you cover and like which beats of feminism and feminist history that you cover in the book and I'm wondering how did you select that and I mean at this point you wrote it gosh almost a year ago over a year ago a lot of it and so what would you change what would you add like tell me about the contents of this book and then we're going to talk a little bit about just podcasting in general <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was one of the most difficult parts of it. I feel that the book started with a very needed disclaimer, but like disclaimer after disclaimer after disclaimer, uh, because when you're talking about these intersectional feminist issues and the history of um, covering or erasing those issues, then every choice feels so big and so intimidating. Honestly, uh, we had a huge list that we were just like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And because uh, we don't have all of the time in the world, we had to narrow it down. Uh, and we tried to give some well-rounded, like these are the big, in one way or another, these are the things that we wanted to talk about, should talk about, but it's always under the umbrella of understanding that this is the tip of the iceberg. This is so small. And it was frightening, to be honest. Like, it, it, we would be like, oh no, I was like, Billie Jean King is going to yell at me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, it was a lot to try to decide. And in making those decisions, you feel like you're making, I mean, you are in a way, you're saying, like, okay, this is the thing we should be talking about. But in talking about that, I don't want to lose that that is just one part of it. Like, I'm hoping that when people read this, they're like, okay, I want to know more about that. Okay, mm -hmm. I want to go learn more about that. Uh, mm -hmm. Because it's not at all <laughs> comprehensive. Right. I think the biggest part when we were having a sit down, and, and 
will tell you the truth of it all. Uh, it went through several processes of different people having different conversations about what should this book look like, wanting it to be in relation to our podcast, but making it different enough that anybody who doesn't know anything about the podcast can come in and feel like, okay, I'm learning something and it doesn't have to be necessarily in sync with the podcast. We try to find some different things. Um, and when we were talking about this book, we wanted to make it interesting, but approachable. So we were trying to find enough like, okay, let's talk about the pantsuit revolution and why this is so small, but it's big. Uh, let's talk about the big things like the history of the civil rights movement and why um, the women and the people in that community, what they did. And then had this conversation of like, yeah, you might be familiar, but do you know about this, this and this? And again, like having to take the big things and like, okay, we have to weed out some of the things because there's too much. We don't have you know, thousands and thousands of pages to do this with and also make it our personality. So like trying to decipher how to do this in a way that shows our heart and shows our personality was a big part of this conversation. And having people uh, from the publisher, we had Janie, who was right there with us, who is a, a writer as well as an editor. She was right there helping us to <laughs> corral us in, honestly, because we we're like, we're going to do all these things. And she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Calm down. We're going to need to do this, but make it so that it's impactful. So when we're having a conversation about these movements and talking about why it's important that we constantly talk about it and why it's important that we never forget. And also remember that even though it's history, there are new things being discovered and people who have been left out that needs to be talked about again and again or for the first time. And one of the things that you do is you you provide alternate histories, which I thought was fascinating. And listening to it at first, I was kind of confused. I'm like, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's like these little these little kind of parables. And then it's um, but that's not what happened. Yeah, you know, you know the ADA was passed, or you know, <laughs> Roe v. Wade was put into law for a time. That was so brilliant to me because it shows the. It shows the alternative. Like, this is what the world would have been like if we didn't have the Americans with Disabilities Act or something like that. What made you decide to do those little vignettes? We, again, like, kind of one of the big things is that Annie is actually a writer and she has a lot of fiction. One of the things segments in our uh, show is her fiction. And I think for both of us who love to read uh, Once Upon a Time, I've done it less and less as I got older, I'm not going to lie. Um, but when it comes down to it, we were like, we want to make it different. We really had this huge idea. And I will say, like, originally, like, how do we make this interesting? What if we talked about the fact that if they didn't exist, uh, what would that look like? And I will be very honest, it was difficult because some of the sections that we were talking about doing it with, uh, for example, the civil rights movement, I was like, this is really uh, disrespectful. So we changed it. For those who haven't read it, we actually did had the idea of making that similar to the other chapters where we had a fictional portion and then come back with, but it did. But we felt that was so disrespectful because the movements like that are still being lied about and uh, are still being misrepresented. And as we know today, it's trying to be taken out and rewritten. So we couldn't do it in all the sections. But for some of the sections that we wanted that to be the conversation, unfortunately, with the Roe v. Wade chapter, we're kind of back <laughs> and yeah. having a bittersweet moment of like well shit it actually happens <laughs> yeah we wrote that into existence it's all your fault <laughs> we did, we did. <laughs> um 
but like the the part of that was too that we wanted to talk about the hope of the Jane, Jane Collective, and we we talked about them and who they were, the underground abortion uh, clinics, essentially women who ran these abortion clinics to help women, to help uh, others who could during a time where abortion was illegal. Now we're back again, and we're looking at how movements like this will always survive. And though we don't know what that looks like, you betcha we're going to fight, no, no matter how that would seem to the world. Yeah. And I think there's sort of a depressing thing that happens. Originally, we had like this really grand idea where <laughs> we were going to write a world without feminism and the publishers loved it. And they were like, oh, that'll sell so quick. And then we're like, oh, no, that's going to be miserable because we're going to have to like <laughs> it's going to be such an epic undertaking that I actually think would be interesting, but we didn't have the time to do it. Uh, and especially we were trying to be very mindful about, you know, as much as we want to write about the rest of the world, that's not our experience. And we are not the ones that should be writing about that. But there, the depressing thing I was referring to is some people might take that fiction graphic novel part and think that is true. Like they don't know the truth of it. Like the, the ADA was a good one for me. Like I didn't know that when I was researching it. And so we tried our best to be like, it's not trickery, but to like present information in a new way, in a new way. And then through that, make you think like, I really should know more about that actually. Mm -hmm. Like that shouldn't have been a thing that I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's strange in our world of like, fake news and all mm. that stuff that it was something that we we thought about and talked about but the power of presenting like these in some cases would seem small uh moments but they're not like they're, they're people watching it and they're like taking information from that and that was one of the ones with the like lgbtq rights chapter i really left that one thinking like you know, if that hadn't happened, that would have been miserable. But I do think something else would have happened. Like something else right. would have come around. This idea of like people would, they're going to fight and they're going to keep fighting for these things, even if this instance didn't happen. But it's sort of showcasing the power of all of these things that we do and maybe take for granted. Mm -hmm. And that actually, you said a word that I actually had written down a phrase. And Annie, I think you speak it in the audiobook. You say that feminism is inevitable. You really believe that feminism is inevitable. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I, when we were first talking about our kind of grand, <laughs> like, Handmaid's Tale novel that it did not come out to be, I just kept thinking about that. It's like, you know, if this doesn't happen, this event didn't happen it still would have happened in some way. Like I just, it's very difficult for me to believe that people who are oppressed in some way will not come together, will not fight that oppression in one way or another. And so another chapter, which again, kind of sounds frivolous, but the chapter with Billie Jean King and the Battle of the Sexes, I kept thinking like, if she had lost that Battle of the Sexes, which by the way, she thrashed that guy. So don't yell at me, Billie Jean King. But if she had lost it, like someone else would have seen that. And instead of feeling downtrodden, or maybe they feel downtrodden, but instead of being like permanently downtrodden, they would have felt, well, maybe I can do it. I could do it. Or I can train and I can try and I can do that. And so I feel a lot of this, the scenarios we present, I'm hoping, uh, have that, that hope imbued in it of 
this is miserable. Like being mm-hmm. in our current timeline in our world with Roe v. Wade, like the things we're seeing is so painful and the fight is so exhausting, but there, there are so many people that want to fight. It is inevitable in that way where people are seeing this and it passes on through, through generations. And so I'm very hopeful, especially with younger people, what, with what mm-hmm. I'm seeing their protest and their thoughts and all this stuff. I'm just, we're in it together, even though, <laughs> even though, even though everything sucks. and not equally and yes, right. like, yeah, privileges and intersections and yes, but it is, it is like, I, I just feel that it will, it is inevitable. People will keep, keep fighting that mm-hmm. fight. It reminds think, you of the, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, I think one of the things we were talking about too, is like when all of these movements happened and when we talk about it, it's amazing how many movements were happening at the same time. So people all over the world were doing similar things. So even though one person may have done this like a day later or whatever, it exists. It's still going to exist. And that's kind of that conversation we have. Like we know revolutions happen because there are so many people who have started at different parts of the world differently, but come to that result because of the oppression. And that's the understanding that (laughs) we marginalized people, women, uh, all of us, are smart enough to know when we're being taken advantage of. And though this one person may not have done the full thing and did a halfway, the next person takes it up and does like to the extent. Like it's this relay race that will always continue, even though someone may not be loud enough or think they're not being loud enough or someone has to give up or someone, you know, stops at a moment. Like it just keeps going. It builds. And no matter what, someone's taking up that uh, race. Mm. And what I was going to say, it reminds me of, Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote that the arc of justice is long, but it, or the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think that's kind of what you're saying here is it, it, these, these changes are inevitable. Feminism is inevitable. It just might take a little while, but we are all working. There are many of us. us. There are people (laughs) actively working against us, but I do think that there are more people working with us. Um, to make these changes come to fruition. And one of those changes is is feminist media. And this is my fancy segue is, like I said, you know, I have been a fan of Stuff Mom Never Told You, of How Stuff Works, of, of that whole family of podcasts for, gosh, over a decade. I, what y'all do is so important um because you're you're giving folks the language and the tools to have discussion about feminist issues social justice issues and literally how the world works a few years ago you took over stuff mom never told you from Kristen and caroline who have been on our show as well so i will link their interview in the show notes transition is messy it's difficult it's necessary especially in feminist work and Feminist Book Club is at the precipice of a transition as well. Um, For those of you who were unaware, I am in the process of handing Feminist Book Club over to our team um, and stepping away. Passing on the torch, right? And so I want to know from you both, in a feminist organization, when you do hand over the reins, when you do pass the torch, whatever metaphor you want to use, like, do you have advice as someone who has received the torch? (laughs) Or are you, do you have suggestions for an organization that might want to see this transition through? Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Okay. I think one of the big things, if I could go back to myself, I would have said, 
is that I was never going to be Kristen and Caroline. Um, I was never going to live up to that. And maybe, you know, like live up, I shouldn't have tried, but I was so concerned about, and I think this is a valid concern, but I was so concerned that they had an audience who loved them. And so when I came into it, I think I was trying way, way too hard um, to not be who I am. And then in doing that, I'm not doing a favor for anybody. I'm, I'm not helping me. I'm not helping the listener because it sounds false. Like people can hear that when they're like, oh, she's too scared, which essentially is what it was. I was too scared to be myself. Like it made me start doubting all of my own thoughts and all of what I thought might be good content. Like I was just so concerned about not uh, evolving, honestly, like kind of keeping it in the same lane and keeping this, you know, we just had a conversation about being a podcast, a feminist podcast in the capitalist world. Like I was so concerned about like the monetary damage and, and losing listeners and how that will look. And, and, but I also loved them and I wanted to, be true to them. So it was a real question for me of like, how do I continue but evolve? How do I continue but like find uh, my own voice, which can sound kind of trite, uh, but that is true. Like finding, because I believed in it. I really did. I believed in it. It was something I listened to when I was in college and changed my life because um, I came from a very small town and I hadn't heard about that kind of stuff. So I wanted to be that. I wanted it to continue. And I was afraid if I failed, then it wouldn't. And people wouldn't have that voice. They wouldn't have that thing. So I guess it's it's not easy. <laughs> and the you know, the joke is the podcaster's prayer is please don't judge me by, by my first 50 episodes. Uh but <laughs> but it is that it's staying true to what you want out of you know producing producing this but also allowing room for for growth um i don't know if i'm giving any good advice uh <laughs> <laughs> just, my my experience yeah. um it's hard yeah. so it's amazing to see have you being able to support and be there and mentor them essentially uh and and because we knew Kristen and Caroline as well as we did and and got to sit with them and Annie really got to learn a lot because she was with them from jump uh learning all the ways like i think we had a little bit of an easier transition i will say change is hard change is hard for everyone especially for someone who likes their routine so having a base audience i know it can be difficult to transition uh, one of the things is having grace and patience. And you know what? Sometimes you don't like people. That's fine. That's not your cup of tea. Uh, the amount of like what's happening <laughs> essentially that came to us was like, what was going on? Um, poor Annie had to navigate her boat, uh, the boat essentially a year long without knowing what was happening. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of things that people don't understand that goes behind the scenes that we as people who are in this industry are going to support each other by not putting each other on blast. But that also makes it look really messy from the outside sometimes. And I think that's that bigger lesson of like, we are still human. 
we are uh, trying to show each other grace because, again, change is difficult no matter why the change happens, no matter what uh, the reason is for, or even if it's for the better, it's still it's difficult. Like uh, even us having our parent company being sold, that was a whole transition that we had to go through. And we were trying to figure this out. Myself, who was never a part a part of the podcasting world, coming in being like, "Oh, this is this is different. I don't have to worry about you know getting chased by random people in my car." But as a social worker, it was a whole thing. Um, uh, <laughs> not just because not just because of my personality, although sometimes yes. Um, but you know, there's so so much to that that you know, giving grace and and being patient and learning as we go. Because even if you do think you know the industry. You still have to know that you're learning new things. Um, and that's all a part of the bigger picture is trying to make it cohesive and then trying to make it their own or your own and, and being true to yourself and, and being honest with who you are and then bringing in your personality because that's what people fall in love with. Um, I'm still learning that bit three years later because I'm like, I don't I don't know what my own personality is. Again, it's trying to be very, very lazy, comfortably in the corner on the couch. But, uh, you know, the level of love, like that's where it really um, comes down to and just being able to support each other. And again, giving grace. I think that's the biggest part to this entire to any industry. Let's just be honest. I think that is so wise. Honestly, it's like nothing is nothing is clean we're all ducks where we look on the surface like everything is fine and peaceful and serene and everything underneath us is just like a dumpster fire <laughs> <laughs> you know what i love that um we've had past hosts on the show uh really come through bridget does a whole episode of a month with us bringing on us her good stuff and we love collaborating with her that's the biggest thing is like um learning that everybody brings in such good content and such good information and then the personalities and like you just want to hang out anyway so when you're allowed to do that and meet new people that's even better yeah bridget segments on your show are, are like some of my favorites like yeah. i love you guys but <laughs> but bridget's there. great <laughs> <laughs> And I think yeah. I'm speaking to something really important here that I talk about a lot on this show, on the on in our news. Like I talk about this all the time. And that's this fear of failure is not feminist, right? We are going to show up and mess things up. And by by not trying, we're not doing anybody any good. And so I would love to hear about some of your failures and how that has actually propelled you forward, whether that's writing the book, whether that's with the podcast, whether that's previously in your careers. I, I'm just so curious and feel free to take some time if you need to think about it. I think I would actually love to hear your thoughts on this too. Um, I think because the conversation around feminism and intersectional feminism feels like it's going a mile a minute. Like it feels so fast that when you have a podcast that comes out semi-regularly or when you produce content in that realm semi-regularly, everything kind of feels like a failure because you didn't include this one thing or you didn't include this one aspect or you, I mean, I think for me, a lot of, I, I had to make a list where I would put up, like, make sure you're talking about how everything is ableist and it's racist and it's sexist but even so, like, I'm still coming from one experience and I can't. There are some things I definitely shouldn't speak to, but there are some things, like, because of my privilege, I don't think about. Um, so 
literally every episode when I I was joking with you before, but I was kind of not joking. I get nervous for every episode because I think I've I've left something out. Inevitably, I have left something out. I have not given it the space and time that it needs. And a part of that is there are some things I just shouldn't speak to. But a part of that is also, yeah, I don't have all of that information. I just don't think about it. And so, I mean, that sounds so depressing. But every episode, I'm like, where did I go wrong here? Uh, <laughs> and our listeners are very kind. Uh, generally, mostly, I'll say mostly, not generally, mostly. <laughs> uh, well, they'll write in, they'll let you know, and uh-huh. they'll be like, okay, here's this, which I actually really appreciate. Like, even though it hurts, even though like I'll have like a defensive reaction at first, I'll sit with it and think of it and be like, okay, you're right. I need to think about this. Um, and I do think that is important to your point. I was so scared to even call myself a feminist because I was like, I'll never be perfect. I'll, I'll never get it right. Uh, but I think it's way better to try and to listen uh, when other people are like, no, you need to, you weren't looking at this. You weren't giving this what it was, the meaning that it has and then getting better and then growing. And I, I get, I get that that's not easy, but I think that's, that's the whole point. Like it's not, uh, but we need to do it anyway. <laughs> like, that's kind of the whole thing. Right. There's so much to that conversation because, yes, uh, race, sex, gender, identity has a lot to do with what you feel is failure and what you feel isn't. And a part of that is dictated by your anxiety and your mental health. Let's be very clear and very honest. And also what you're taught. So we've talked about this before when uh, young girls are taught so many things on being perfect. And then you grow up with this level of anxiety. So you're constantly thinking you're failing, failing. That's the bigger problem. And of course, this is a whole societal issue that we've talked about in general, that it's not really the personal thing. It's literally how society dictated what you should be and how you should be. And if you don't fit that mold, then you have failed. So taking apart the conversation about what is failure, I think it's the biggest portion to this. Because for me, in my own mind, for myself in general, I'm like, yeah, definitely fuck that up. Like, (laughs) that's like the end conversation in the back of my head. I was like, yep, Fuck that one up too. Well, go in bed. Like that's kind of that mentality for me who grew up with a lot of reactive attachment issues, like all these things. So I think that's the biggest portion. Like that's the common sense side to me in understanding, okay, let's let's break down why we think it's a failure. Then we kind of have to have this conversation of like not letting it eat away at you. Like this level of like waking you up in the middle of the night, like, oh my God, why did I do that? Like that, that fear and how to deal with that. And again, that has everything to do with anxiety and and in your depression and and your mental health and or maybe it's a diagnosis like ADHD, like so many things that come into play when we talk about failure and what that looks like for marginalized people and how it's used against marginalized people. Because yes, as we say that we are intersectional feminists, we are being watched by every sector of when we're going to make a mistake. Um, and as the narrative changes and as we learn and, go, learn and grow, we have to meet those changes. And doing that is hard. <laughs> and I say this as like a 42-year-old woman trying to figure this out and be like, well, shit, okay, we have new pronouns. I have to figure this out. And, and realizing that this is good instead of being a burden. And when I'm called out, because I didn't know that existed, like there is a book that I, I'm so ex- excited about, Gender Queer, we, we had uh, read it. And the pronouns, I was like, oh, okay, 
okay, let's, we got to practice. Like essentially like having to do that and learning, okay, this is a part of progress. This is good because people are being included. That's what we want as intersectional feminists. But we have to give ourselves the grace that sometimes it takes a minute to get used to it. And I'm not telling the boomers that they're okay. They're not. You're not okay saying those racist things. Don't say that. But like <laughs> the, the, this level of trying to really give yourself the grace to realize this is how we learn. Um, I had a big incident, and I talk about this a lot. When I first started, when we talked about sexuality, I got called out by my definition of bisexuality because I had taken something uh, out of an article that was outdated and or was probably wrong, like all these things. And they were mad, rightfully so. Uh, and at first I was like, what? what? I didn't know. I just read a quote. I don't know what's happening. And then coming to, okay, you're right. Let's have a conversation. And it ended up being a beautiful two-part series with all these people telling me about this uh, like identity. I was like, okay, explain it. Oh, this is amazing. And I feel like I made friends with them. I still see them on the, like social media doing their thing and I'm very proud of what they're doing and the amazing works they're doing. But that's where it was a learning moment. It was like, I definitely fucked again, fucked it up. But someone called us in and was able to give room to teach me. And that's that big part of like, that was a true failure to me, but it wasn't a failure because I learned. And so in understanding that I can grow in that and I can learn in that and I can come out of my old ways and have this conversation. And also a part of this is ignorance in which was like, I read it, I assumed it was right, moving on. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) it's deeper. Mm-hmm. And that's the entirety of life. Like it is deeper than you know. And, and coming in as never being really big researcher, like I hadn't researched since since you know college, and then being like, okay, this is what research looks like, and that's what it takes as well to really make sure that we are expanding our horizons and making sure we are inclusive of all of the different medias, and we are aware of who is speaking and who we're allowing to speak. So there's so much to this conversation. And at the end of this, I'm going to feel like I failed because I can't stop talking. But <laughs> but the, the truth of the matter is, like, I think we have to look at what we look as failure and then what we see and take responsibility of why it failed and then move forward. And then it becomes a whole different conversation. I am so glad you pointed all of that out. I think that... <laughs> I wrote down some notes, so just from what you both said, and I just want to put like a pin in some of the things that you both said. Um, Allowing one another to evolve is so important. And in the same time, in the same breath, like allowing for accountability when we do fuck things up, like that's why I think cancel culture gets wrong is like Mm -hmm. we will cancel somebody and then we don't allow them to be held accountable and take responsibility for that failure or for that mistake. Mm -hmm. Right. And there has to be room for growth and understanding and learning within these pockets of calling people out and in. And I think that's the difference between calling out and calling in is calling in allows for growth. Um, I think as podcasters, um, as folks who kind of live in this space um, online, who are kind of seen as leaders in this, in this space, which is so uncomfortable to me, but (laughs) I will carry that mantle, I suppose, for now. Um, We have to be willing to learn out loud. We have to be willing to show the work. If, you know, you're called out for bisexuality. For me, I was called in about um, fat liberation and fat phobia. I learned so much from those conversations and and disability rights is something that I'm also learning about. And you will see like my personal content that I have put out on the pod and TikTok especially has been like very heavy and like what I'm learning in disability rights right now. I think just like emulating 
growth and accountability is really important. And it shows others that, yes, there is room for mistakes, right? That that perfectionism is not only unreasonable, but it's terrible. <laughs> Because it assumes you're the smartest in the room, which you're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) Damn it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing is like, you can't, that, that fear has kept so many people out. It kept me out for a long time. So I think that, I think there is a very, there is a line between your sort of willful ignorance, which is not what I'm putting on any of us, but like, there is a line between feminists who are like, oh, well, um, <laughs> I'll never be perfect, so that's fine. Versus, I'll never be perfect, but I'm going to try to be better. I think yeah. that is a very important distinction here. Right. And just as a reminder for those who are trying to be better, that doesn't mean asking marginalized people to explain themselves repeatedly. <laughs> that's that's about you yep. doing the work. As a reminder, we live, we might leave that part out. We're like, well, I'm trying to learn, so I'm asking this one person who's been traumatized by the situation repeatedly why I need to learn this. No, right. that's not how that works. Absolutely not. No. no, no. The way I see it is like you do your own research and then you share that, right? As, right. as a person who fucked up, like that's what you do. Um, you don't go to that group. Right, amen. Amen. Um, well, this has been a delight. I want to once again plug your book, Stuff Mom Never Told You. What can we expect from it? Where can we buy it? When is it out? Tell me all of the things. Ooh, uh, well, you can expect some amazing illustrations. We really wanted a graphic novel bit, and we got that. Uh, and we we got to incorporate my one of my favorite things, which is fictional women and like the power of that. Uh, and you, I mean, I don't want to speak too highly, but I think you'll learn, you'll learn some stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you will. Yeah, I have some amazing content. I learned. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite parts of that, and uh, I need to give credit to all the uh, different people who've talked about it with like Honoshone Nation, who, uh, really did all the work way before when it comes to feminism and i'm still like i cannot believe i'm 42 and just learning about this i'm upset type of conversation um but yeah and then helen Choi coming in with the art and looking beautiful uh and so excited by the entire thing but yeah it is coming out august 29th apparently we're about to get our uh first ad- official copy <laughs> i'm nervous That's right I am nervous as well. Uh, Yes, it comes out August 29th, which is near my birthday. So just like do me a favor and help me out. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can uh, pre-order it. We have an audio book. It's really cool. Um, And the physical book at stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com. Thank you so much. And go, we'll link everything in the show notes and um, go check out Stuff Mom Never Told You again. A legacy podcast that I have loved for most of my life, I feel like, at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Lovely. Been lovely. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. 
and check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature.